This is Football CFB, the home of unique football content. I never told you You scared off the vultures I never told you You scared off the ghosts living in my head That lay lonely in the dirt That Overjoyed to be joined on Football CFB today by a man who scored goals at Middlesbrough, Liverpool, Sunderland, and has even had spells playing in Japan, playing in Spain, playing in France. Crucially, he's managed the same club three times. So much uh, passion for that particular club that he wrote a book called Three Times a Quaker, My World of Football and Passion for Darlington Football Club. Um, David Hodgson, thank you so much for joining me. Callum, honestly, I've seen you so much on, on, on LinkedIn. I've seen all the people you've interviewed. Obviously, I know you spoke to David. Truthfully, it's my pleasure that you've asked me to come on to your show and do this. So I'm grateful. Thank you. The, the first question I want to ask you um, is about Darlington, because when I interviewed David Priest, he described you as a manager that he loved playing under. And the one thing that stuck out to me from what David was saying was he was stunned that you never went and managed elsewhere because he rates you as one of the best managers he had in his whole career. So the simple question to start is, why did you only manage Darlington? And I don't mean that in a disrespectful way. It's a great no, club, no. but I'm, you had I'm, opportunities. I yes, I, I did, to tell you the truth. Um, I didn't have any opportunities before. Actually, I tell a lie. I had an opportunity to go up and work with Peter Reid at Sunderland. And at the time that conversation was taking place with Peter, was it the same week that I had the decision to make reference to Dalton Football Club? So I decided in the end to, to go alone, go take my own chance and, and, and not so much work with somebody like Peter, who was at that point was very, very successful, you know? So yeah, taking over Dalton Football Club, did I take over thinking that I would manage it three times? Obviously not. Did I think I'd be there Best part of 10 years of my life, obviously not. But I fell in love with the club and, and not just the club, I fell in love with all the problems that the football club had had for so many years. And I took it upon myself to say, I will take this club out of all of those problems and take it where it hasn't been before. Hence the reason why I kept returning. But things were very difficult. Obviously, David will have told you that in his interview with yourself. But it was, a, it was a love that just grew on me and grew on me. And in the end, um, it was the only one. A bit like my wife. My wife grew on me. I love her to death. I'll never have another one in dog football clubs the same. <laughs> you, you, you mentioned the challenges that, that come with management. With Darlington, and it's not only Darlington, finances can be quite tight. How hard can that be as a manager when you're in a league with clubs that can maybe go out and buy three or four players in each transfer window or each key part of the season when you're restricted? Callum, two, three, I never, ever had a budget apart from even George Reynolds' era when when George went public and tried to say this and this and this. Now, I went on the radio and counteracted and I told the truth and George didn't quite tell the truth, to be honest with you, but... At that point, and I probably had a budget that was never out of the bottom three, truthfully. Okay. Even to the point that when I took over Don Football Club, and I should have seen what was going to happen from then on, 
when I agreed and joined, the second day that I've gone in the office, I was then told that we couldn't sign anybody. There was an embargo on the club. We were still paying four previous managers, some of those guys you'll know, Frankie Gray, Tony McAndrew, two Scottish compatriots, uh, Ray Hankin, Alan Murray, Eddie Kyle. Uh, yeah, four or five were still on the, on the books of Don Football Club when I took over. So there was no money. So my objective, first and foremost, object was to get all these guys their money. I knew every one of them, by the way. There were technically people from the football world. I, they were friends of mine. So I made it my, my challenge to say, right, I will get rid of a player, which I did. But the deal was with the club. And I said, when I do it, that money pays everybody off. And that's what we did. So the first transfer was Adam Reid, the Blackburn Rovers. And we cleared the debt of Don Football Club with all of the managers, all received their money. And, and then from then on, it was the same for the next 10 years. <laughs> the, yeah. the big thing with Darlington, and you know this, you've probably been asked a million times, but with Darlington, the stadium, obviously in years to come, was, was an interesting project, it's safe to say, a massive arena yeah. built. When, when you were in and around the club, uh, obviously the facilities were, were much more humble. Um, what were the facilities like for you when you were working there? And how shocked were you when the club announced they wanted to move to such a big arena? Well, um, to be honest with you, I was at the very beginning when, when George came into the football club and he had this huge dream. Trust me. And I'm sure lots of other people did. And, and God bless him, a guy called Luke Rain, who's no longer with us. He was one of George's sort of right-hand man. Even George went to great lengths to say, we were building a stadium way beyond our means. But, listen, the, 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 we'll rewind a little bit. When I first came to Dalton as manager, and the, on the first day that I went into the... I'd never been there before. I'd only wanted, wanted for treatment as a player, believe it or not. I went in and I, I thought, Jesus, this is worse than what I played in in Spain 10, 10 years earlier. And it, was, it was so bad. It was depleted. Blah, blah, blah. The pitch was horrendous. The young groundsman at the time, Andrew Thompson, had a hose pipe to water the ground. A hose pipe, nothing more. So it was very, 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 very bad. So between that and the new stadium, we also had a point when the football club was taken over and we had another a main stand built, which was very nice indeed. Again, cost the club uh, was done incorrectly in theory. But there was this lovely state stand with private boxes, proper changing rooms. Everything was done right. So in between the horrendous one to getting at the arena, which was magnificent, we had that little spell of a reasonably nice one in between. But I'll tell you a quick story, and it's to do with one of your teams up in Scotland. I used to be very, well, I am, but at the time I was very close with Paul Sturrock. And he brought St. Johnston down. And uh, we were in the old ground at the time. And we hadn't, we hadn't played, um, we played very well in the pre-season. We hadn't won, but the lads had played so well. So when they came down, I put Paul Sturrock in the home changing room, which had this monster boiler in. It was about 30 degrees outside. And I put towels at the bottom to make sure that when they arrived, the heat was so bad that they'd be dehydrate, dehydrated before they even go on the pitch. Anyway, we beat Luggy. We beat Paul Sturrock and St. Johnston. And that set the club on, on its way, you know. But that's how bad the change rooms were back then. Anyway, there you go. And in terms of your, your, your time as manager, you, you had the, the, the joy of getting to, to a playoff final, but also, unfortunately, not winning and getting over the line. How heartbreaking was that, given the hard work you'd put in? 
Well, if 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 I went back to the original season I was there, the the lads went on to get to Wembley again, got beat off Plymouth, one uh, 0 I'll say it, and I and I and I'm and I know for a fact had I stayed, we wouldn't have gone through the playoffs. We would have won. We'd have gone up automatically. And if we had gone through the playoffs, we'd have won that because that was an exceptional side that that we put together on nothing with with no money at all. So. It was fate that I, I would go back again with Dalton and again get beat 1 0, and again they'd score very late on in the case of Peterborough. And that was a turning point for Dalton Football Club because George Reynolds, who owned the club, he didn't really understand that if we got beat at Wembley, we didn't get promoted, and, and which is pretty crazy when you own a football club. But that put the football club back because obviously I walked out again. That was the what the second time I'd walked out the club through through bad by bad ownership in theory. Um, but to get there, and, and honestly, we absolutely dominated that football game. Dominated. Even Barry Fry, who's a very good friend of mine, said, Hodgie, I don't know how we weren't 6-0 down by, by halftime. And on that particular night, which was a Friday night, they changed the fixture from a Saturday to a Friday, which killed our supporters, that's for sure, because it's a long way to travel on Friday night. It was torrential rain for four days. The game should have been 100% cancelled. The referee said that himself. But because Wembley was rented out to the football at the time, we had to play that fixture because the international game was getting played the next day. We had to play. And unfortunately, that was the downfall for us because of how the conditions were. So all in all, we were never meant to get promoted. That's for sure. It went against us too many times. But uh, in terms of heartache, it, it broke my heart for sure. In terms of your recruitment when you were in charge at the club, some really impressive names you were able to bring in. Marco Gabbiadini, Neil Heaney, uh, Paul Heckenbottom, of course, who's went on to be a manager. I mean, how did you approach recruitment? Because Neil Aspen's another one that comes to mind who obviously was, was a player who was at Leeds during his time in his career. How did you approach recruitment? Because you seemed to be able to bring in a real core of players that had experience, had been there and done it, and crucially could add to to Darlington with yourself um, so much on the pitch, but also off the pitch? I think the, the, the biggest thing was when you sit down with a player, you've got to really convince him that he's going to join you for all the right reasons. And I know money plays a part, there's no question, but at times, sometimes a player can go a little bit beyond that. And because I was so passionately in love with Down Football Club. I think that probably rolled over to the players when I was talking to them. But I'll, I'll tell you a, a really funny story. You're talking about players, and you'll know this boy because I can see the shirt behind you. We signed a player called Bobby Petter, who played for Celtic and played for Ipswich and, of course, Holland. And at that time when we signed Bobby, um, we had an embargo on us. We were in... Um, we we're in uh, what was the terminology used? Anyway, we had an embargo on us, and we couldn't pay more than hundred pound a week wages. And um, I was trying to—I'd been offered Bobby Petter, and we were away in London in a game, and Bobby had agreed to meet us at a hotel. And we were playing South End at the time, and my assistant then it was a lad called Mark Proctor, and he said, "Hodgie, you cannot possibly be serious that this kid." is going to come and join Dalton Football Club for £100 a week, right? And I said to him, Procky, let me tell you, I'll guarantee you he will join us for £100 a week. Procky couldn't believe it. So when Bobby Pratt arrived, 
me and Mark Proctor had this amazing uh, sort of bounce off thing that we could, we could, it, you'd just be in stitches within minutes of being in there and you'd go out crying. So you probably couldn't remember anything that was said anyway. But in the case of Bobby, we had this great one hour conversation with him. We, 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 we had him in stitches to tell you the truth, but I really emphasized that if he wanted to come just to play football, he, he'd made, no, I was being detrimental by saying you've made enough money, but if you want to come and enjoy yourself and play football, I tell you now, you will not find a club in this country better than what we are. And I really, I meant that and sincerely sold it to him. And he said, right, listen, and, and I'll go away. And I think I said, well, look, at, we start training at 10 o'clock on Monday morning. If you get there for 9.15, you can have breakfast before we start, blah, blah, blah. We hope to see you, Bobby. If Bobby left the, the room, Proctor said, Hodgie, forget it, pal. He's not coming. We got there, quarter nine on the Monday morning. Bobby's pet at Porsche Cayenne was parked waiting for us. And I went in, I said, yes. He said, I'm here, £100 a week. Wow. Shook my hand and the kid was fantastic. In fact, that when the end of season came and he had to leave, we couldn't pay him the kind of money he wanted. He was getting the parents' money, okay, so let's not think he was getting good bonus money. But we could not give Bobby the type of wage that he really deserved in theory. And because he'd done such a great favour for us, he was, he was very, very upset when, when he had to go. But £100 a week he came for. Wow, there that's incredible. And, in terms and then of... again, that was, all, that was only because I, I didn't sell him a story. I sold him a genuine love that I will make him play and enjoy football again. At the same time, he will love playing for Darton Football Club. And, and that was the case with all. And David Priest, who you've spoke to, I signed him on a free. I promised him that I'd get him back to where he would be. He went for me to Aberdeen, went for 350 grand. And uh, and, and that, that was one that was one of many that we we promised we would do good things for them as long as they pull the shirt on and, and give everything for us. And yeah, off he went. And the same applies to the rest of them. Gabbiadini, of course, we know about Gabbas and, and, and many more, you know. Do you think yeah. that experience as a manager at Darlington with those constraints enabled you to go on and become an agent and be involved in recruitment because you'd had to, to, to work with guys like Bobby and get them to the club for the love of the game? So ultimately, did, well, did working in recruitment suit you? Yeah, well, when I got when I got off at Don, I didn't, I didn't go for Don Football Club job. That when, when I got off of the job, the chairman of Don Football Club got in touch with me to fire a very good friend of mine, God bless him, who's now passed away, called Barry Geldon and said, Hodge, would you be interested in speaking to Dalton? So when I, I went to meet them, it wasn't an interview, and I made that clear, I ain't coming here for an interview. And, and one of the first questions they asked is um, about recruitment. And I said, listen, let me tell you, I can find a player with one leg who can play football. I said, so I wouldn't have any problem coming into this football club as long as I control who comes into the club. I will make sure that every player comes in here, will go out of here, being a better player and the fans will appreciate them because that was technically my biggest strength in recruitment, having the ability to make decisions on players when when others when others didn't. And, and that's basically how I ended up at Don because they must have thought, well, hold on, yeah, we've been bankrupt for the last five years. If Guy can come in, find us the players, sell them, make us money, then we're going to be a better club. And that's exactly what happened. Really, that was it. It wasn't about had I had any coaching skills prior to coming. No. Um, hadn't been a management, hadn't been coaching. I just simply went from having an agency where I made decisions on players 
recommended them to clubs in England. And that's what got me the job at Darlington Football Club. And to be honest with you, that is my biggest strength, to tr- tell you the truth. And in terms of recruitment, you, you talked about sporting a player. If, if a club asked you to spot a player for a particular league, so say, for instance, it's League Two, what are you looking for for a player in League Two compared to a player in, say, the Championship? Well, again, you know, people talk about leagues and they say they can't play at this league and they can't play at that league. There's an element of truth in it. But the hardest thing about recruitment is when I, when I went for a player, I knew that... I knew what, something tells me, okay? I know that that player is good enough for me, okay? Um, for example, uh, Neil Heaney. Neil Heaney hadn't played 10 games in four years. Always injured, unfortunately, right? But I knew that he had the qualities that if I could get him, that I would get football out of him. I got 46 games out of the 48 in one season, and he hadn't played 10 in the previous five. But I knew he had ability. I just knew it. Alan Armstrong, who's now our manager, Dalton, Alan hadn't played 10 games, 20 games in two or three years. But I knew he had the talent, no question. And I also knew that if I get him in, I will make sure I get him out on the football field. And that's exactly... And Alan played 40-plus games as well and went on to play elsewhere thereafter. So it's about knowing that the player will fit the jigsaw because when you build a team, it's a jigsaw, okay? And if you put the wrong piece in the wrong place, it doesn't fit and the jigsaw becomes unstable. So I just have this idea and a vision what piece I need to slot into a certain position. And that's how I go about recruitment. But the downside of recruitment and how I do it now, I can find a player recommend them to a club, they will see it. But when you, when that player ends up in the hands of, whether it be the first team manager or under 23 manager, you're in the hands of the gods. Because if they haven't got the ability to get the best out of that player, that player then fails. And it sort of reflects on you. Or in this case, it, it reflects on, on technical my judgment. But that's the one thing that's always worried me. When you find a player and you hand them over to a club or you recommend them, you're putting it in the hands in hope that they get the best out of them. So, yeah. to, to talk about your playing career, you, you start at Middlesbrough. What was what was it like for you when 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 you were offered your, your first professional contract? Because growing up in the in the, the northeast, I imagine for you, you were desperate to, to become a footballer as so many lads were. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I back then that, that was they used to say, I have a saying in my day in that era, is you could shout down the pit and someone would come up and play on a Saturday afternoon in any team in the country. Because the North East sort of like produced that type of player, a bit like Scotland, to tell you the truth, but the North East had this habit of producing players. So I always felt and always wanted to be a football player. I didn't have, you know, when I hear people say, oh, I dreamed about playing for England. Oh, I dreamed about scoring an FA Cup final. Things like that. That was never, ever something that I, I basically enjoyed football because I loved playing football. And the funny thing was, when it became a job, and truthfully, it only really became a job when I left Middlesbrough to go to Liverpool, that a little bit of love 
for for what football was to me sort of disappeared. And I think that was evident throughout the, for the remaining part of my career because I never found that that loving relationship you have between yourself and the fans and yourself and the club that you're playing for. So, and in t- yeah. And in terms of Middlesbrough, okay. you, you mentioned coming through the system there. When did you start training with the first team and when did you think, I've got a real opportunity to make an impact here? Again, yeah, I never ever thought, oh, I've got... I, I don't know, I played... I was very fortunate, again, looking at the shirt behind your back. My coach was a guy called Bobby Murdoch, ex-Celtic legend and Lisbon Lion. And Bobby was... Probably some of the things that made me a manager was Bobby had so much time and care and thought for players. And and very, very... um, very loving towards players, you know, he, he got the best of them. You wanted to die for Bobby Murdoch on that thing. So as a kid, if you didn't come through, it was simply because you weren't good enough. Bobby got the best out of everybody. And I obviously was good enough. But so I'm in the first team environment. It, without stop, without being on the in, in the actual playing field, I was at uh, 17, 18 years of age. I think 18 back then was the age you broke into the first team, you know. So I was 17, 18, I was already knocking on the door. There was players in front of me, but at the end of the day, Bobby, uh, John Neal, who was then my manager, realised that there was kids coming through, myself, Craig Johnson, Mark Proctor, Peter Johnson, Charlie Bell, etc. Some of the senior players, he moved on to allow these kids to come through. Whereas today, that is probably the biggest downfall for football. Clubs don't do that anymore. But I'm fortunate that it, that it did for me back then. So... And in terms of Middlesbrough and Ersam Park, see, because you were from the northeast area and you had an affinity yeah. to that area, do you think that helps you on your way because the fans can relate to you? Well, truthfully, when I signed for the Borough, I felt as if I was a million miles away from home. I was only from Gateshead, but the journey down just seemed to take forever. Um, I used to jump on the bus and the train with a lad called Billy Askew. We used to go home every weekend. Uh, when, it, when it was opportunities to us, it felt as if I'd gone to the end of the country. And I was only 45 miles down the road, you know, 30 miles down the road. Um, but no, the, go, going to Middlesbrough Football Club again, I fell into a, 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 into a club at the time that was fantastic for youth, to the old chap called Harold Shepherdson, who was a assistant manager for, for England. And he had this vision of, of, of building a fantastic youth system, and he, and he, which he did. And more kids came through at Middlesbrough than probably anywhere else in the country at the time. So leaving home to go to Borough seemed as if it was a million miles away. I got homesick many occasions, but eventually you adapt to it and you get a camaraderie around you with the rest of your teammates who've all done the same, all come from different parts of the country. Craig Johnson, God sake, came from Australia. So all those together made us, made us better players because we were happier players. You mentioned loving your football at Middlesbrough. You mentioned the, the impact that, that Bobby Murdoch has on you. See, when you're really enjoying your football like you were during your time at the Borough, do you go into every single game thinking, I've got a chance of scoring today for yourself, obviously, as a forward-thinking player? Cam, I, I wasn't a goal scorer, uh, to be honest with you. Um, the strange thing was, as a kid, I was. But when I, when I got into the first-team environment, John Neal had worked so hard on me and Bobby Murdoch that I became somebody who got more enjoyment out of creating than than actually scoring. I got more joy. 
out of seeing somebody else score by doing something special to get them to score than I did, say, standing three yards out and tapping it in. And, and I think that reflects, if you ever see old footage, you never see me jumping around celebrating, but I certainly did when a teammate did, you know, Scott. And I think um, that was one of the things that when I went to Liverpool Football Club, the, they at the time had a prolific partnership, and you well know, it was Rushy and, and, and Kenny. Kenny was probably just coming towards maybe the back end of his career, no question about that, because of his age at the time. And I actually think that my role might have been in the, in the minds of Liverpool is could, and I'm nowhere near like Kenny Daglish, by the way. Kenny was a genius, football genius. My game was based upon pace and strength, and I will grind you down, and I will outrun you if, it, if it's to create a goal, whereas Kenny was, well, just a genius, full stop, end of. But I just think that Liverpool signed me on the belief that I might have been able to replace Kenny and providing the material to Rushy to score the goals, but it's a different style completely to what Kenny So no one ever really recognised me as a goal scorer. I was predominantly somebody who provided, you know. But before we talk about the move to, to Liverpool and how that came about, you, you were involved in the England under-21s team from, from the 1980 onwards. What, what was yes. it like being involved with the England under-21s? Because it was a very successful team you played in and it seemed to boost your profile even more. Well, I think that, that England side was the first side to win anything since 1966. We beat Germany over two legs. Um, so, yeah, listen, I was. I remember, I remember getting on the team bus to play an away game for the Borough and John Neal called me and he said, uh, listen, I've got some great news for you. You've been selected to play for, for, for England under-21s. At the same time, there was Mark Proctor, myself and Craig Johnson. We played at Anfield, funny enough, against, I think it was Republic of, Republic of Ireland, I think it was. I think Ronnie Whelan played that night for him. I'm not too sure. So that was like my first game. But again, bizarre as it sounds, that when I went to, when you stand in the lineup and you're singing the national anthem, that didn't really mean anything to me, truthfully. I, I, as I said, I never grew up thinking, I want to play for England. I just wanted to enjoy my football. And fortunately, playing for England was working with Terry Venables, who was so funny, very, very nice guy. Dave Sexton, who was like a, a wonderful human being, father figure. So really, I fell into this England squad with great lads, with a very nice um, family-like atmosphere, a bit like what Middlesbrough was with John Neal and Bobby Murdoch and such. So it was like stepping out of one into another. So for that, I didn't have any worries about playing for England and I was never nervous. I never give it a second thought. I just pulled on that shirt with that group of players, with that management team, as if I was pulling on the butter shirt. And it was so easy to, to, to make the, you know, to adapt to it. But as you said, rightly said, that was a very successful, very successful side with some exceptional players that were the first team to win anything since 1966, you know, which was incredible at the time. And in terms of the training, and see, because you're all of a similar age, obviously, including the name under-21s, does that really help in the training because you've got a lot in common with the guys around you? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, all credit to to the recruitment who, who they chose for that specific squad, that they, they picked good players, obviously. They picked players of a similar 
I don't have a similar character. I mean, each and every one. I'm still in touch today with with Gary Shaw, for example, who was it was there at the time with me. Sammy Lee, obviously, I went to play with Sammy eventually with Liverpool. But lads like that, I I kept in touch with along with Justin Fashnu. God bless him. We know he's he, he he took his own life, but Justin was a great lad again. Uh, and the and the funny thing was going back to that group of players and how we were. We knew Justin was gay. But there was no thing about it. There was no like distancing anything. We were just this very good group of players that the coach and staff or England set up would pull together. And, 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 it, and it worked. And, and they were all good players at that moment of time. Every one of them was playing at the highest level in English football. Every one of them. You don't get that today, by the way. You go and get the England 21s. Half of them aren't even playing in the first team. They're out alone at lower leagues or championship level, for example where them kids at the time were all the best players in the country were in that England side. I just want to touch on um, what, what you say there about Justin Fashion. You, a lot of yeah. talk in the, the modern game, as you know, is would a football team be able to accept a gay footballer? Now, you, you've spoken about your experiences of playing in the under-21s with Justin. It was known, it was every, it was accepted. You treated him as a, as a normal human being, as he was. Yeah. Um, yeah. Do you think it's blown out of proportion the fact that many in the media think football couldn't accept a gay footballer in the modern day? I think probably more so now than ever. Back then, Justin, Justin was like a lone wolf in theory. You know, nobody in football. We we we, we had an inclination. Okay, Justin didn't say I'm gay. It wasn't until a long time after that Justin came out. But we had inclinations. He did mix was on the night time. He disappeared. He went off somewhere else on his own. We didn't know. There was little rumours, thoughts. But I never, I ruined with Justin. I never ever once looked at Justin and thought, I don't want room with you. I never once looked at Justin and thought, Jesus Christ, if he is gay, what am I doing? Not, never. And that was back 35 years, 30 years ago, 35, 40 years ago, 40 years ago. How the, how the game hasn't adapted to that, how gay players haven't come out, I honestly don't know. Take a leap from this kid. He, he came forward and said, I'm gay. He set the platform for other people to come out. So I don't know. I'm sure there's a lot of gay players in football. I'm surprised they haven't come out, more so in the modern world. I mean, if you talk to my daughters, they don't even give it a second thought. In my day, it was different, of course. Not in my opinion, but it wasn't in, in, in the opinion of my parents or, or, or older generation. Oh, no, that can't be done. My, my daughters don't even give it a second thought if, if they were talking to somebody who was gay or bisexual. They wouldn't give it... They, they, honestly, I, I saw today, I think if you're gay, just come out and be proud of it, for God's sake. Justin set the benchmark for you, for Christ's sake. Anyway... Absolutely, and I think that's something that's that's definitely important, and hopefully can, can happen in the game because, as you say, I think football has moved on. I think society has, and and I think it's it important for, for for that to happen. Yeah, listen, now you you switch the TV on, uh, you, you you see gay guys kissing on TV, you see lesbian acts on TV, you see everything on TV now. Whereas one time that was oh my god. Yeah, yeah, if you've seen somebody kiss on TV, especially way back in my day, it was like, oh, Jesus Christ, what are we watching? Well, it's there today. You know, it's society, it's life. 
you know, they, 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 do, they, do they have a choice to begin on? No, they're, they're gay or they're lesbians because it's in the, it's in the genes, it's, it's what they are. So I can't see why people find that hard to, to deal with. I, I, I just don't. It's, it's dead simple. Anyway, there we go. And you, you, you talk there, obviously, in terms of that England team is of the success, the camaraderie, the coaching, everyone buying into it. You replicate that success in your own right with Middlesbrough because there's attention on you. People are talking about clubs being interested within you. Liverpool, of course, are an incredibly successful club come calling. But I'm interested when you say that when you got to Liverpool, it felt more like a job than it did at Middlesbrough. How did the interest come about? And what was your initial reaction when, when Liverpool came in? Oh, the funny thing was, I'd already heard a rumour, okay? And, and it, that was cemented to me, and I'll, in which I'll tell you the story. So I'd heard a rumour, but I didn't have, and I, I said early on in the interview, I didn't have these dreams of sort of playing in cup finals or representing England. And so I never had this particular dream that I wanted to leave Middlesbrough and join the biggest football club in football at the time. It just, just how I am. It, it's just, it, it wasn't the be all and end all for me. So when I got, when I got the call, it was on the opening day at, at Ayrson Park and all the fans were there. We're doing all the other last. And uh, Jim Plan, who was my, my who was my, the, my close friend at the time, of course. And there he was, he said, Hodgie, listen, do you know about Liverpool? And I went, no. He said, Liverpool have put an offering for you. The club are going to accept it. How Jim knew? Anyway, Jim was very close with Bobby Murdoch, who was then the manager. And literally within five minutes of Jim saying this, his tannoy came up. Can Dave Hodgson please come to the manager's office, please? And this is on an opening day with all the fans and everything signed off. So off I go. I, I now know, by the way, what's going to happen. So when I get up there, Bobby's waiting for me and Harold Shepherdson. He said, Hodgie, We've had an offer from Liverpool and under the current circumstances because of the financial state of the club, we have to accept it. And I actually said, I ain't gone. I'm not gone. But you have, and, and I actually, I declined and said no. And this went on for about three or four days, maybe a bit longer. And eventually Harold Shepherdson took me again to one side and said, Hodgie, I know you don't want to go on and, and you've made it clear. We've told Liverpool the situation. They really want you, and but the truth is, Hodgie, if you don't go, our football club goes bust because of the financial situation we're in. So I was literally forced to join Liverpool. Do I regret it? Not at all. Okay, but I was forced to go as opposed to going out of ambition. If it was ambition and desire to be the best, then of course you'd say, right, I'm out of here and gone. Well, in my case, my character is not that, and it wasn't a desire to leave Middlesbrough Football Club. I was heartbroken. I went down that motorway with Harold Shepherdson. The truth was as well, and, and I think I was probably the highest paid player in English football at that time. And now, why I was at Middlesbrough, hence reason why they had to get rid of me. So when I went into the meeting and they asked about the finances, I basically come out and said, as long as you pay me 10% more than what I'm on, to Bob Paisley and Peter Robinson, and they said, oh, yeah, that won't be, yes, that won't be a problem. And just so because what is your wage, David? And when I told them, well, I earn £900 a week now. I earn 33k sign-on fee. I have a £15,000 allowance for a car. 
and I have two now thousand pound allowance for a holiday every year. Jesus Christ, they nearly died. They nearly died. So they actually, they went out the room. They must have gone out and said, Jesus, this is, this is a, a lot of money, which it was. I know that. So they came back in and, and accepted and okay. And people shook hands. I remember going all the way home. I don't think I spoke to Harold Shepherdson all the way back to Middlesbrough. And then I went back down two days later and I literally cried leaving from Ayrson Park right the way down to Naughty Ash, which is on the outskirts of Liverpool. I remember stopping at Naughty Ash and thinking, I haven't signed yet. I can turn around and go back. Truthfully, that is a true story. In the end, I sat there for a while and I thought, come on, I went. And anyway, I went, got to Anfield. Craig Johnson was waiting for me, my ex-teammate, and I signed and yeah, that was it. But I think if I'd gone to Liverpool Football Club with a desire to be there, with a belief in myself that I should be there, then I probably could have been a success at Liverpool. I could have gone on and played for four years, six years, eight years, quite easily. I had the ability, I had the talent, I just didn't have the desire or the mental attitude to, to stay at a club like Liverpool. There you go. Wow. And in terms of the initial going to the club, you've, you've described that there in, in perfect honesty. What was it like when yeah. you started training alongside your Rush, your Douglish, Hansen, Lawrence, and all these big, massive names? Yeah, well, the funny thing, Rushy was, as it happens, had gone, because I'd said to him, I wasn't sure I'd made the right decision, and Rushy said nearly the same, because he came from Chester. Rushy was the complete opposite to me. I was quite, I had a bit of like a character about me. So I had a dress code about me since, I had a bit of swagger, that type of thing, whereas Rushy was the complete opposite, quiet thingy, and he he dealt with it, and I should have dealt with it, and I, but I didn't. But, you know, Meeting Kenny, Graham Souness was there. Well, I'd already played with Graham at Middlesbrough. I already knew Sammy Lee from England. I already knew Craig Johnston. So there was three. Alan Kenny was a Geordie. So that made life easy because he was straight away welcome. They all were. They were all very humble people. There were some sarcastic ones. Alan Hansen was a one that if you made a, a rick in your conversation, he would take it to pieces. So you had to change room that had the same dynamics as maybe every other club, but these were household names. But the sad thing was, when I found out later on life and, and, I, and I watched the ex-Liverpool programmes, I hear how nervous they were, how scared they were when they first joined Liverpool. But that when I got there, they didn't give that impression to me. They just give it that they were all meant to be at Liverpool Football Club because they were the best. And I started to question myself because I didn't have that same mental strength as them guys. Yeah. But no, they were very well. Now, the thing was, when I joined Liverpool, Craig Johnson stayed behind. So my first meeting with everybody was in Puerto Benus in Marbella. And I remember that first night, which is pre-season, we were up at four or five o'clock in the morning. Everybody was absolutely plastered, drunk, playing fizzbuzz. And yet the next day they turned up for training and were magnificent. Whereas if you'd been, say, for example, at Middlesbrough Football Club, the next day the training would have been a shambles. But these guys just switched on. Uh, in incredible. Amazing. You, you mentioned Graeme Souness and playing with him at Middlesbrough and at Liverpool. 
just sum up how good Graham was as a player because lots of people know him now as a pundit. Obviously, he'd been a manager as well, but a sensational talent. Listen, I, I said earlier about Kenny. Kenny was a genius. Okay, he had a football brain. At times, could make him look bad when really he'd seen the bigger picture and, the, and, and his teammates didn't. So Kenny was phenomenal. Graham Souness was a bit like a comfort blanket. When Graham was on the pitch, you, you, were, you were comfortable, you were confident. He was that good. But he was not just that good as a player. He was also fantastic as a leader. Leadership skills, talking. He understood the game. He, he, he knew where you should be. He knew what you should be doing. And when people were not at the level, he got the best out of people. And that's that's what set Graham Souness different from everybody else, in, in my opinion. I know Kenny is, and rightly so, by the way, regarded as the best ever player at Liverpool Football Club. And by the way, if people like Steven Gerrard and co can't knock Kenny off that mantle, that tells you how long it's going to be before somebody else comes along and does it. So Kenny is the, I, the king of Anfield. But for me, Graham was, he was special, you know. You, you mentioned earlier about not being known as a as a goal scorer, but you scored four goals in your first six games. Did, did, was, did you think was that was rushing. going to be a big moment? <laughs> no, it was always going to dry up. Um, but at one point, I was ahead of Russia, you know, on the goal scoring thing. And I think Liverpool might have thought, Jesus Christ, he's doing something that uh, we didn't know was in his locker. But look, if you're going to play for Liverpool Football Club, and get the opportunities, even with someone as me who wasn't a great goal scorer, was always going to get one or two more than than I probably would have done, uh, uh, you know, elsewhere. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll tell you a funny story. Uh, they, they, yeah, Bob Paisley, a, a reporter, calling, uh, calling um, Steve, uh, uh, what Gibbles? Jesus Christ, my apologies was a big reporter in the Northeast, fantastic fellow. He came down to do this interview with me. And uh, we've came out of the change rooms in the morning and Bob Paisley's walking out with him. And uh, Gibbo says, how's Hodgie done? He said, Bob used to have this, he was a Geordie, but he had a strange accent. He's doing very well. He used to swear as well, terribly. But I don't swear, so you're not going to get out of me, but he went, he's doing very, very good there. He says, but... There's one thing that worries us. He says, uh, and he said to me, Hodgie, and I'm obviously I'm walking out with him. He said, I'm going to ask you this question from the Gibble. How is it you can run at 100 miles an hour, put a ball perfectly on Rush's foot, but you cannot put that ball between two sticks that don't move? (laughs) 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 What's the answer? It was just incredible. And that was sort of like three months in. So he obviously realised then that that wasn't going to be a goal scorer. But he he was absolutely right. I could make a goal when others would never even have got close to doing it. But yet I didn't have that composure to put the ball between two sticks that didn't move. Which is stupid, isn't it, when you really think about it? But yeah, anyway, so Bob came out that with, uh, with Gable, the, the report at the time, and uh, yeah, hilarious. 
What were Bob Paisley, Joe Fagan like? Absolute icons, of course, of, of Liverpool Football Club. What were they like to work with? They were just just ordinary people, you know, just they they, they, they weren't coaches as what you have today. And this is why I find the game so frustrating today. You've got all these so-called technical geniuses. But I'll tell you now, if Joe Fagan, Ronnie Moran, Roy Evans and Bob Paisley were here today and Shangley, who obviously I didn't work with, and you had them in a football club, I'll guarantee you today that them same four guys would have a team that'd be atop the league. Because what they'd done was they drilled into your simplicity. That was something I found difficult to do with simplicity. I tend to look for the difficult ball as opposed to the simple ball at times. But they just had this humble mentality about them that uh, they were just father figures. Do you know what I mean? They were like, they were like, your, like your dad or... There was nothing about them that didn't have. I, I fell out with Joe to a certain extent. That was one of the reasons why I left. But you know, that's not uh, to, to bring to the table now. But they were just, just honest, genuine, humble guys. They weren't coaches. All they told you was keep the ball, get the ball back, play it simple, and move, which is actually what the game's about today in the modern game. Keep the ball. If you've got the ball, the opposition can't score. And if you've got the ball, keep it. Keep it simple until you get the opportunity. It opens up for you to score. Patience. What's well, patience? We see Man City passing the ball around patiently. Liverpool were doing that in the 80s and 70s. Patience. Waiting for that one moment when somebody would step out of the wrong position and punish you. But then you also had great players like Zidaglish, Souness. Whelan, uh, Craig Johnson, and so on, Hans, etc., who had the ability to know when when he made an error by stepping out the wrong place, they'd punish you. And that's all Liverpool did. And they that was because the coaches, they weren't coaches. They were just football people who created simplicity. They didn't have coaching badges, like today, where you have FIFA A and license A and all of that. They probably wouldn't even get the coaching badges in the modern game. But did they produce the best players? You're goddamn right they did. Did they get the best out of the players? You're dead right they did. Why? Because they were humble, genuine, honest people. And that, isn't, that doesn't exist anymore in this football, hardly. When you look at what they achieved as well during their time at Liverpool, I mean, when you were at the club, two league titles, a European Cup, you get a medal for that as well. Obviously, the charity shield yeah. in there too. What was it about them that... As well as producing the best teams, the best players, what was it about them that helped the group be so relentless? Because when you look at the 80s, similar to Alex Ferguson's Manchester United in the 90s onwards, they were just relentless year after year, competition after competition. The management team have to take a lot of a, a lot of credit for that. But the individuals were winners. So you put those two parts together. And you've got one hell of a strong force. And that's what Liverpool had. They had the, the, they had the credentials. They had the correct people knowing exactly what they wanted. The recruitment was brilliant. Bob Paisley never made a bad decision. So in a way, I sort of get some comfort out of that, knowing that Bob Paisley signed me. So I must have been a good player. And at the same time, of course, you have the players who had this great mental strength, this unbelievable belief in themselves. And um, once they got in front... They weren't going to let go. Trust me. They they would go for the jugular. 
And, 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 and that was the success of Liverpool Football Club, in my opinion. That's just my opinion. In the end, what was the European Cup run like? I mean, as I say, you get a medal for that. What what, what was the journey like for you? Honestly, truthfully, I really can't really remember. It just, a game rolled into a game, into a game, and then because they'd been there before, they sort of knew how to deal with it. So you're sort of just part of it type thing. You know, it's not as if you were there for the first time, and everything's like, uh, there was all these magical moments because it was the first occasion you got the European Cup final. And that group of players was the first time to get there, a bit like if you win the league. For the first time, you remember the journey. But I was just this little cog in a clock that every time it went to 12 o'clock, it was another trophy. And that's what Liverpool was. So I, there was no big ballyhoo. There was no uh, celebrations when they got through one round. They only celebrated when they got when they won it. In, in my case, in Rome, so there was no special journey for me. Honestly, there wasn't. It just I just went along with it. Yeah. And in terms of the celebrations, I imagine they were incredible. Well, as I said a bit earlier, I had this little bit of a swagger about me, and from a fashion perspective and and from a like a I was probably a bit of an entertainment type manager type thing I think so that them celebrations on that, that night were my were fantastic. I remember the celebrations more than any about the games previous. Truthfully I do. Uh, but yeah, but again that was the thing about Liverpool Football Club. Once the celebrations were over, that was it. It was gone. Get your mind on, i.e. the next the next game. Well, in this case, the season was finished, but it was finished with. It was crazy. You got back. I remember going on the team bus, open top bus, obviously respectful to all the fans because Anfield's a particularly special place. And then holidays come about. Everyone had gone holiday. Everybody comes back for pre-season and everything that's been won is forgot about. Gone. End of. And you got your medal, by the way. And I'm sure if you've spoke to, I know you had an interview with Kevin and Kevin Keegan. Kevin would have told you, you got your medal. They didn't, you didn't get a presentation. You turned up for training on the first morning. Your medal was hanging up on the on a locker, hanging up on your peg. That was how you got your medal. And if you got to your peg and there wasn't a medal, you didn't deserve it or you hadn't played enough games. In my case, fortunately, I did. I have that medal. It was just hanging up. <laughs> I mean, how crazy is that? Because they, that was their mentality. That was a case of, it's gone now, forget about it. We have to now win the, the league this year. And that was the relentless attitude of those wonderful guys. Joe Fagan, Bob Paisley, Ronnie Moran, Roy Evans, uh, Chris Lawler, those type of people. That was, that was what Liverpool was about. I've got to ask you about the final itself in the sense that you're on the bench that evening, as is Stevie Nicol, a big character. I've spoken to Stevie. Yeah. How did you both cope yeah. when the game goes to penalties? Because I imagine Stevie would have been absolutely shaken. Well, I, I don't know if you've heard the story. They We'd taken all the penalties. Um, everybody took penalties leading up to the final in training. And honestly, I don't think anybody scored. 
and it was that bad. So the last thing probably though, those lads stroked me as well, obviously I wasn't on the pitch, would have been one to go to penalties. Stevie Nichol was supposed to be fifth in line to take the penalty. And the Nick, who happens to be a great lad, decides he's going to walk in first. So he disrupted the entire uh, selection process. <laughs> the Stevie Nick goes up and misses. But can I say that about Stevie Nick? And, and I, I'm not going to be, and I, and I hope nobody takes his being offensive to, to offending him. But he was, he was not the brightest, right? But in a, in a lovely kind of way, as if nothing bothered him. That even missing that penalty probably wouldn't have affected him one little bit. It would have gone over his head. And that's my opinion of Stevie Nick. And he was a super lad. I only had two years with him. It wasn't one of those players I kept in touch with when I left Anfield. But he... He was a super kid, but again, yeah, he, he went first when he should have been fifth. So he disrupted everything, but at the end of the day, it, it all worked out. So when you're sitting in my case, sitting in the dugout watching, you're so nervous. You're nervous for them, first and foremost. Of course, that goes without saying. And you're nervous knowing that if they miss, that that opportunity of getting that medal is gone. So it's like a double nervousness. Where's the lads playing? Just go out there. They're nervous for themselves, trying to score the goal, you know? Anyway, but the celebrations on that night were phenomenal. Phenomenal. Yeah. When you look back, just how special is it to think you've had your hands on that European Cup? You know, I think I had a tough time six or seven years ago, mentally, to tell you the truth. And... Um, and it was probably all those things that dragged me down that I didn't really appreciate what I had. I didn't appreciate or sh that I should have done more to stay there. I, I left Liverpool. Liverpool didn't say, Dave Hodgson, we want you to leave. Dave Hodgson asked Liverpool to leave. And I have so many regrets about those things. But when, when I get that odd moment and I look back and think, Hodge, you know what? You were so fortunate to play with phenomenal players, to, to work for fantastic coaches. And they weren't coaches. Well, I was fantastic to play with such wonderful human beings like Joe, Ronnie, Roy, Bob. So in a way, I was blessed to have had that opportunity in life when, when others, you know, people can say, oh, well, I've done this and done that. Liverpool Football Club would always say, put your medals on the table. That was their answer to everything. Put your medals on the table. Kenny, Suey. Suey got 25 medals in his lifetime. Put them on the table. Well, I can turn around and say, well, I've got five or six. Put yours on the table. But I, but I was lucky that I was part of a great side. You, know? you, you mentioned the fact that you choose to leave Liverpool. Why, in the end, was it Sunderland you, you decided to join? I'm going to tell you a true story here. And I'll tell you now that that will never work. What I did will never happen in football, okay? So I knew I had a, a, a tough time with Joe, okay? Um, for, 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 for different reasons, but so I sort of half felt that Joe didn't really want me. And I spent that season sort of 
on the peripheral sort of, I probably was sub more times than anybody else in the history of Liverpool, maybe not as much as Danny Fairclough, but I spent a long time on the bench without actually getting games time. You know, I was always like 12th man, 13th man. And we went away and playing South Africa at the end of the season. And Joe played me right side midfield and he played, Mark Lawrence was behind me. I, truthfully, I had no idea. I thought I was just there. Paul, we just signed Paul Walsh um, into the club. Michael was still there, Michael Robinson. So I basically think I'm playing there with the thought that I'm no longer recognised as being a striker as such. And I actually done very, very well. I, I didn't have any problems playing right side. I played sort of there for Butter. I have no problems working hard. I have no problems defending. I can tackle. I can head. I can kick you. I could do any of the things that a defender could do. And he played me there. And I, I didn't understand why we did. And then end of the season, at the end of that tournament, we came back. We won. We beat Spurs. Uh, great, great sort of 10 days away from home. Then the summer break come upon us. And then Joe called me and he, he brought me in two or three days before we went to play in the Charity Shield. And he said, uh, listen, um, I'm on a proposal to you. I would like you to reconsider where you play. And I would like you to reconsider all those transfer requests that you keep putting in, which I had, 20-something transfer requests. Obviously, back then it was private. It wasn't something you go to the newspaper and say, "I've just put a transfer." Get the you know get the media behind it. And he sort of hit me with this, and I, and and I'll tell you the truth. I turned around and said, "Well, Sammy Lee's there, and he's my mate." I actually said that to Joe. Joe said, "That's not your concern." I thought that well, it is because he's my mate, and I don't really want to be seemed to be taking his, his his position. In a way, you you might find that difficult because I was a professional sports person, but that's how I am as a human being. So anyway, he, he put that on the table to me. We played Everton in the Charity Shield. I didn't get on, truthfully. And that was Liverpool history. You normally played the side that had served the club well that season. I didn't get on. I thought I should have. So on the Monday, I goes to see Joe and said, Gaffer, I've got to go. And he says to me, where do you want to go? Where would you want to go from here? And I said, Sunderland. I did know they were interested, by the way, so I'll not deny that. And he said, okay. And Sheila, who was his PA, he said, Sheila, get um, Len Ashurst on the phone. So Sheila dials, I'm still up there. Joe's with me. Sheila's on the phone. I hear Sheila talking to somebody in Sunderland and it said, can I speak to Joe Fagan? Uh, to, sorry, can I speak to Len Ashurst? It's Sheila from Liverpool Football Club. I have uh, Joe Fagan here wants to speak to him. So Sheila says, Joe, Lenny's here. Joe Fagan says, go on then. Speak to Sunderland and ask him if they want you. So I took the phone and says to Len Ashurst, hi Lenny, it's Dave Hodgson here. Hi, David, how are you? Blah, blah. I said, listen, my gaffer has asked me where I want to go. I've told him I want to join Sunderland and he's made me ring you. He said, well, he said, well, okay. He said, is Joe there? I said, I said, yeah, my gaffer's here. He said, put him on. I put them on. I heard Joe spoke to Joe. Lenny, Len Ashes was a scout, says it happens. So they had a, like a little bit of a chat and Joe says to me, go on, get yourself off the train, 
I'll see you after training. Off I went. He didn't say anything to me. I got home from training, answer machine. Joe was on. David, Jigafa, go up to Sunderland. You've got to be there tomorrow morning. But I want you to give me a word. You do not sign until I speak to you. Okay? So I pack my bag. I drive up to Sunderland. I stay at my parents' house. I go to Sunderland Football Club 7.30 in the morning. Len Ashurst has me in the ground. I joined half my wages. I went for half of what I was earning. Okay? I agreed, agreed a two-year deal. I should have signed for longer. I agreed a two-year deal. I signed it, and I called Joe about 10 past nine. Oh, my gaffer. I said, hi, gaffer. It's Hodgie. How are you, son? Good. I said, gaffer, I've signed. He went, you've put pen to paper? I said, yeah. He said, you've just made the biggest mistake of your life, but I wish you well. Take care, Hodgie. You put the phone down. I have no idea to this day why I had made the biggest mistake in Joe's eyes. So they got some Englands thereafter. Kenny became manager. He probably knew that me and Joe, he probably knew that me and, me and Joe at the time didn't really see eye to eye. He probably thought, stay, I'm leaving. Kenny's here, you get on great with Kenny, which I did. Kenny was more than a friend to me. And he hit me with them words. And to this day, I have no idea what he meant. And that's tortured me as well, by the way. Wow. Sunderland, so, a club so, that obviously northeast club, massive club. You, you mentioned having family who live nearby. Yeah, but I, I grew up supporting Sunderland. Sunderland were my kid, my club as a kid. So I I spent from the age of six to fifteen years of age. Actually, even when I was playing for the Borough, I still supported Sunderland, believe it or not. But I that was my team as a kid growing up. So if I'm gonna leave Liverpool. And my manager asked me, where do you want to go? And I say Sunderland. Then for me to say go to Sunderland was dead easy because I was going, I was going home. So, yeah, there we go. You go there, you reach the 85 League Cup final. Unfortunately, lose out to, to Norwich on the day. The club is ultimately yeah. relegated at the time mm -hmm. as well. How tough was that to take, given what you had left behind? Horrendous. And the sad thing was, we got off to such a great start. At one point, I rang Sammy Lee to try and convince Sammy to come and join Sunderland, but he ended up going to QBR. I convinced Alan Kennedy to leave Liverpool and join Sunderland. So we were doing very, very well. And then it just horribly went, it just went wrong. It just all went wrong. We, we couldn't buy a win. The cup, the cup run sort of distracted us. We thought we'll you know, get out of that and we'll get on track. We, we lost at Wembley, which was a killer. With, with the club just lost its momentum. And, and God bless him, Lenny Ashurst, who was Sunderland through and through and through and through, um, end up losing his job, you know. And, and when you go into management, like I did later on in life, I did realise the impact that that had on him as a manager. And so it was a sad day for Sunderland Football Club. And then, of course... They went ahead and, and brought in Laurie, well, I call him Laurie my enemy, but it's Laurie McMenemy because, again, I don't know what it was or where it came from, but from the moment he came in, him and I, even though we were Jodies, simply never hit it off for one single second. And I went through the, I got put through the, the ringer under Laurie Mac, beyond the norm, way beyond. 
what I got put through from a from 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 a uh, from a player perspective from Lottie was just not acceptable in football. But anyway, there we go. You you mentioned the treatment that you had from from Laurie, the, the the anger and frustration of that time at Sunderland. After that, you had the chance to go abroad with Gothenburg, who go on to win the UEFA Cup. But it's yeah. not that she ultimately joined in the end. Why did you not take the plunge to go abroad at that time? Well, honestly, this is true. And and, and, and I cannot give you the absolute fact of, of, of this. I believe what happened. Laurie was, at the time, had a great relationship with the company that wanted to take me abroad. Okay. And I got a little feeling that Laurie just wanted me out of the way out of the UK. Okay. So I had this chance to go to IFK Gothenburg. I had a chance of lots of clubs, but I also had the chance to join Norwich, who again had got obviously gone down with us. And I spoke to Ken Brown over the phone and he was such a nice guy. So when I went down, he actually said to me, I'm signing you on the advice not to buy Laurie Mack. And I'll tell you the truth. What I had been offered financially from every other club was five times the amount I accepted off Norwich. But that's what I am as a person. It wasn't about the money. If I'd, if I'd had some ruthless nature about it, I thought, stuff, I don't give a damn, you know, what Laurie thinks me as a player, or whatever, I'm going to take this money and blah, blah, blah. I actually went to Norwich for next to nothing to try and prove a point. Now that's stupid. I, I wish I had somebody around me to guide me and take me down a different road, but I didn't. But I, I made that choice and, and, that, and that's what I did. So I ended up signing for Norwich City on a one-year deal for next to nothing, which was which was crazy, you know. You've uh, an interesting spell at Carroll Road. Part of that sees you go on loan to Middlesbrough. How good was it to be back at a familiar place? No. Horrendous. Didn't want to go. Um, knew I wasn't fit enough. Knew I wasn't the Dave Hodgson that the Borough fans had seen and, 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 and admired previous. Lost the love for football, truthfully. They were insisting I went, insisting that I go. Not, not, not Norwich, by the way, but Middlesbrough. And in the end, I buckled and went and I made my debut against Bournemouth away. And then the next game was Bristol City at Ayrson Park. And I got sent off um, for a challenge on Keith Curl. Well, actually, it was a punch, to tell you the truth. And I never kicked the ball again. I went back to Norwich. So I still had a month's loan to fulfil at Borough, but I couldn't play football. So I went back to Norwich, spent the remaining three weeks not doing anything, not playing, couldn't play because I was suspended. Um, Middlesbrough fined me two weeks' wages, which I found I thought was wrong, to tell you the truth. I'd come up on loan, but they fined me two weeks' wages. Basically, they didn't have to pay anything for me. I was a bit angry about that. A bit bitter, too, you know, not bitter, but yeah, disappointed. So I've made a decision, got forced into a decision I didn't want to do, end up getting fined, end up playing for a club for nothing, Ended up not getting paid for one month. And then, of course, back to a club that, at the time, obviously, had moved on again and spent the rest of the season basically playing in the reserves, trying to do the best I could to help the reserve team get promoted or, or win the league, which they did. 
scored funny enough 30 odd goals that year, which was crazy, but however, and then that was it. My love for English football was finished with. And 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 the chance to go abroad was like, oh, I'm out of here. Gone. Yes. And when when Hareth came in for you, as you say, you were desperate to get out of, of the UK. Was that just a complete no-brainer? I'm off and not even having well, to think about it. Let me tell you, first off, I signed for Hereth, but I actually thought I was signing for Cadiz. Because that's what I got told. I didn't speak Spanish. I met the people in Sevilla. I didn't go down to Jerez. I went to Sevilla at the airport. I met them. And at that exact same time, Jim McLean, who was then manager of Dundee United, the owner of Dundee, they badly wanted me to sign. And, and, and Jim was ringing me 24-7. And I actually said, Jim, Jim, I've, I've agreed. He said, have you signed, boy? A real broad, you know, Scottish accent, Jim. And I said, no, but I've shaken hands. And he went, it's not the same, blah, blah, blah. And I honoured it, and I signed for Spain. I was, uh, uh, Cadiz, I thought I'm signed for Cadiz, and I ended up signed for Jerez. And uh, Jim wasn't happy. So I spent one year in Jerez. I didn't get paid for 11 months. The club was a shambles. Um, they stacked... Two managers, three managers. I, I got told that there was this, there was a magnificent stadium, and the stadium was probably no better than what you would get in non-league today. It was, it was, it was a massive mistake from a football perspective, but it was a life change in terms of a different culture, learning a language, adapting to a new environment. Uh, all of those things made it a better better decision than than just for the football alone, you know. As well as playing in Spain, you also played in Japan and France. How on earth did the move to Japan come about? Well, it's funny. The same group who took me to Gothenburg, who were, Laurie, who were very close with Laurie, they offered me this chance for Japan, but the money was so good. And, and the thing was, I was at Sheffield Wednesday at the time. Big Ron was my manager who was, again, fantastic fella. Uh, I'd had three managers in the space of a year. I'd had Howard, went to Leeds. Peter lost his job, God bless him, because he? He, he was Sheffield Wednesday through and through. Then Big Ron comes. And I remember we went away at the end of the season. And we went to Morbier. And Ron was with his wife, or, or, you know, 30, 40 metres away, sunbathing. And he shouted me over. And Big Ron was a fan of Dave Hodgson, i.e. the footballer that he knew could be and he was telling me about what he was expecting of me and blah blah and I actually turned on and said Gaffer I actually don't think I can play 20 games anymore I had all kinds of injuries you know all these types of problems Achilles tendons knee blah 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 back problems etc and he went are you kidding me and I said Gaffer honestly I, I honestly don't and I didn't know about Japan at this point honestly I didn't and and I said this to him and he said well listen we're going to have a hard pre-season put the work in, and let's see where we get to. Okay, that was fine. Off I went. I was on holiday and I got a call when I was on holiday. I said, I got a call on holiday. Yeah, I did. I got a call to the hotel. So they'd obviously tracked where I was, made a call to me, and said, would you be interested in Japan? I went, Japan? Jesus. Nobody was out there at the time. And they, they said, what, what, would, what would take you to Japan? I told them what I would take, money-wise. So I made up for all the things I'd lost, by the way, but I said, this... So they said, right, we'll speak to Sheffield Wednesday. 
and I said, well, I'd like to speak to Ron first. So I ran to Ron. Actually, I didn't ring Ron. I went to see him when I got back and I explained what was what I'd got offered financially and and the fact that he only played 20 games in Japan. So I thought, well, at least I'll I'll play 20 games at least because I thought that's all I was capable of doing. And Big Ron was magnificent. He said, Hodgie, don't tell the players what you're going for, please, or you'll cause an uproar. I'm going to let you go. I'll let you go on a free. I'll make sure the club pay you a sign-on fee, which they did, which was incredible. And they're all the things that I brought into management. And we'll go on about David at the end, how David introduced myself. But So next minute, I'm on a, a, a car journey down to, to London. I meet the Japanese people. I shake hands. And then I'm on my way to Japan. How did, was, you settle, how did you settle over there? Dead easy. I settled in Spain, so easy. I settled into Japan, so easy. There was a couple of other English players there at the time when I arrived. They, they just had signed. I'd signed first, but I was last there. They signed after, but they, um, um, Bill Fawkes, the ex-Man United legend, uh, was the manager. So there was an English sort of touch. But the Japanese people were magnificent. They were phenomenal. You know, we had this thing about when the war and you, the Japanese were this. I mean, honestly, they were beautiful people. Um, and I enjoyed every moment of it. I had a couple of injuries, I may add. Okay, knee especially. Had a big operation while I was out there. And I only signed for one year. But they actually came to me at the end of that first year and said, we would like you, and this will refer a little bit back to the Sammy Lee scenario. David, we would like to ask you, would you be interested in becoming the manager for this club for next season? And I basically said, listen, I've been brought up never to bite the hand that feeds you. And um, Big Bill brought me here. I couldn't possibly take his job. And I declined the opportunity to, to be manager of, of the Japanese side or the coach or whatever your terminology back then. And I declined it and decided I'm coming home. I came home. I'd been in hospital for three months out there with a knee operation. I went straight to Little Shoal. I spent 13 weeks at Little Shoal. And while I was there, I got a call to say, would I go on trial for a game in, in, in France in FC Mets? And I literally came out of rehab at Little Shoal, got on a flight, flew out to France, took part in the game, had the best match I'd played for about 10 years and then presented with this fantastic two-year contract with FC Mets, which nobody in the world could have thought I could have pulled off. My wife, which was then my fiancée at the time, who's now my wife, obviously, I came back and said, I've just pulled the best game out in, in my career for a long, long time and we're going to France to live for two years and off I went to France. And was France as, as glamorous as it's painted out to be? Listen, um, I got on very well with everybody, truthfully. I got on great with, with the coach, Joel Muller, who I learned so much from that I brought a lot of his great things into how I wanted to be is when I began coaching. I got on with a lot of people. I had a lot, a lot of problems financially with the club, okay, because I got injured within the first two weeks of being there. So I was out with a knee operation. Then I recovered. And then the first day back in training, I scored this, like, worldly goal in training and one of the lads jumped on my back a lad called Drago Bronovich jumped on my back and as he jumped on my back my disc slipped 
So I ended up being out for such a long time with this back injury that by then I think the club had lost patience. So I spent a year fighting them a bit with about money, but I trained well. I conducted myself correct. The coach was very grateful for the way I went about my job. And then I had a short spell on loan at Swansea. And I went back to France, finished the rest of the season with them, and then basically come back from France and said, I'm packing in and decided to just, I was only 31 years of age and I decided enough was enough. I, I wasn't able to even justify being paid a pound by any club. Don't mind the kind of money I probably couldn't. Based on your experiences, would you recommend that British based players take opportunities abroad when oh, they come up? Absolutely. If an opportunity comes, you look at it, you've got to be prepared to go and adapt. You've got to be prepared to buy into the culture. You've got to be prepared to, to accept that if you don't speak the language, you've got to make every effort to try and do that. Uh, you've got to, that's what you've got to do. And I did that in Spain, Japan. France, I went and live in Argentina later on in life and, and, and I make sure that I give everything I can to try and be part of what their society is. So if you're prepared to do that, then yeah, trust me, you'll be, you'll be accepted, you'll be welcome. Even to this day, I still have good friends from FC. Eric back with me at the time, back at Aberdeen, um, Eric was there. So that made life a little bit easier, to tell you the truth. But yeah, I had this amazing life in terms of playing overseas and living overseas that if I had to leave tomorrow to go abroad, I wouldn't even give it a second thought. I'd be gone. Wow. Before you go, yeah. David, it's been a fascinating insight. A few quick fire ones for you. Best players you played with? Yeah. Well, I'd have to say Liverpool. Um, obviously, because of what they were, who they were, uh, what they achieved. So, of course, Liverpool Football Club were... Technically, the, the, the best players, yeah. The toughest opponent you had in your career? A guy called Steve Foster. He had the upper hand on me. Um, that was one of the things I fell out with Joe Fagan for, but we'll let that go now. But however, Steve Foster, Brighton centre-half, for whatever the reason being, I just found I found him very difficult on the day. For, I don't know why, because I was quicker than him. If you wanted to have a scrap, I'll scrap you all day long. But he just somehow got got a voodoo on me. And, and, and he was the toughest, yeah. Other than the teams you played for, what was your favourite ground that you played at? Oh, Jesus. If you know, if you ask Sammy Lee, say Aston Villa, right? I always remember passing Villa's ground. He would say, oh, look at that stadium. I don't know, I never had that. I think growing up, and I'm going to offend the Middlesbrough people here, even though I loved Ayrson Park to death, the fact I stood in the terraces of Roker Park was probably one of those grounds where I just wanted to be, just wanted to play. And when Roker Park was bouncing back in the day, yeah, so that Roker Park was special, yeah. Favourite goal you scored? I scored a goal, we didn't win, but I thought it was the goal that was going to be the turning point in this game. I scored against Wolves away, extra time with a header, which got us back in the game. And for some reason, that goal will always remain pr prominently in my head, even though we got beat on the night. And I've scored some very good goals and 
great one at Roker Park, and which was a special goal and how I scored and everything. But that one goal that sort of sits in my head was Wolverhampton wanders away, albeit we got beat. There you go. Most underrated player you played with? Oh, Jesus. I don't know if I can answer that correctly because I think most of the players I played with were, were recognised as being good players, but the one player who deserved to be a footballer above anybody else, and even in my time as a player, even my time as a manager, even, even now in the life after football, was Craig Johnston. Craig Johnston probably was underrated to a certain extent, but Craig Johnston was the most unbelievable focused kid to become a professional footballer that I've ever known in my entire life. So there's an answer to a question that you didn't ask me, but there you go. And the last main question, based on your experiences in football as a player, as a manager involved in recruitment, following management, what advice would you give to any players and managers listening to this? Well, it depends what the question is that they were asking me that I could give them advice to. But the one thing that I had, and, and I always remember this, when I became manager of Down Football Club, I received a call from Kenny Daglish en route to the ground to sign the contract. And he went, Hodgy, blah, blah, blah. Is it true? I went, Dolo. He said, aye. I said, yeah. He said, I'm going to give you three pieces of advice. One, don't expect those kids to play at the level that you can or did. Okay, so in other words, don't if they can't match that level, don't expect them to get there. Okay, which was a valid point. Two, remember the club is the most important thing, which is which happened to be the case for me. Don became the most important thing in my life. Okay, and three, I hope you're lucky because you'll never find a good manager who isn't lucky. Unfortunately, I was never lucky in management in terms of that final thing that would have won us something or whatever. So there were the three things that Kenny said. And then three things were absolutely spot on. And so today, I still say those three things like lads who, Alan Armstrong, when he I said to Alan and other people when they've gone into jobs, etc. I've said them say exact same three things that Kenny Dagley said to me when I joined Darlow. And they were absolutely spot on, by the way. Wow. David, it's been an absolute pleasure. I've loved every minute of this. Thank you so much for your time. As I said at the beginning, I'll say it now, the fact that you've asked me, thank you so much as well. I, I really appreciate it. Thank you. So we'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our home in a deep sea cave And our shells will all be open They'll be filled with song, they'll be filled with song We'll dive down to the ocean And we'll make our 